you know, people are not expenses um, on the PL, they're assets. And every time we hire somebody new, uh, revenue continues to kind of follow them and value continues to get created. And I think that's another big kind of mental crossing a lot of entrepreneurs go through is that the more people you hire, it shouldn't be more expense to the company. It should be, think of it as more assets to the company that can help produce more opportunity. Welcome to the CRE Project Podcast, where investors, developers, brokers, and real estate entrepreneurs join together to grow, build, and execute on experience and strategies within the commercial real estate industry. We sit down with the top pros and leaders within the commercial real estate field and gain knowledge and insight from their success. We're glad you're here and look forward to connecting with you. You can find the CRE Project on all major podcast platforms, along with YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey listeners, Clayton here. Welcome to the CRE Project Podcast. Uh, On today's show, we welcome a gentleman by the name of Chris Powers. Chris is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital out of Fort Worth, Texas, established in 2005. Um, Currently, Fort Capital uh, owns and operates over $250 million worth of property, uh, specifically in the Texas market. They're mainly focused on industrial and urban core investments, uh, again, in Texas, that have the ability to generate uh, additional value and cash flow for investors. Um, you know, this was just a really uh, just action-packed, informative show. We learn everything from, you know, building a team to the lessons he's learned, both good and bad, and uh, kind of get his one, three, and five-year outlook on uh, the Texas market and the asset classes that he specializes in. So um, sit back, relax. You're going to learn a lot. Chris, thanks so much for being here with us today on the CRE Project podcast. Uh, You know, definitely feel lucky to have a guy of your caliber join us today and uh you know just with your experience your knowledge um you know we think that we're going to get a lot out of this episode so thanks for being here we appreciate thanks for having me i'm excited to be on so heavy hitter super competitive market um you know give us a little bit of background man i mean how did you start um in the business kind of globally? Did you start out as a broker, as an analyst? How'd you get going in it? Yeah, I've got an interesting uh, career path. So I grew up in El Paso, Texas, um, and uh, have a lifelong friend, mentor, uh, a guy named Meyer Marcus that runs a company called Memco there, and was just always kind of attached to him since I was a young teenager, interned with them, and then went to TCU um, in the fall of my fall of 2004 and as a freshman met a guy uh, there and had a desire for real estate had had businesses throughout high school and I met a guy my freshman year kind of trivially at like a keg party where where you meet college Um, appropriate yeah Yeah. and he had run a uh, he had just won a bunch of entrepreneur awards for buying uh, rental houses around TCU and he taught me how to buy them. And so this was freshman year, this was 2004, kind of obviously before the big crash of 08. And a 17 year old freshman with no experience or money was able to get loans, um, like 3% down, 6% cash back loans to buy rental properties. So I started acquiring rental properties my freshman year which kind of led to a property management business, which led to, uh, it was called rentbytcu.com. And my kind of shtick was, this was kind of before students would go online to look for houses. I mean, it sounds crazy now, but in 2004 or five, you still kind of drove around and found a yard sign. So my deal was um, put, any landlord could put their house on my website for free and I would only get paid if I could increase their rent by leasing it. If I couldn't increase their rent, it was free. And I would hire college students to lease out houses and apartments during uh, the summer. 
creative. Yeah. yeah, that was it. I mean, it was it was earth shattering stuff then. And I don't really know, uh, I'd be lying if I said I thought that this would extend into a really long real estate career. That was, it was kind of, how am I going to make money and, um, you know, run a business in college? I kind of honestly thought I would probably always go to like um, Wall Street or something. But I graduated in 2008. So leading up to graduation, the world was great, jobs everywhere. And that wasn't the case. Um, and I got lucky. I, I got a line of credit my senior year of college kind of tied to the equity in my houses. And at the time, it was a revolving line of credit from Wells Fargo, $250,000. I'll never forget it. And the, at the time, it was just kind of to use to make cash offers. And the, the downturn hit and Wells Fargo was gracious enough to let me keep the revolving line of credit and immediately graduated and started buying foreclosed houses uh, in Fort Worth and would renovate them and, and flip them. Um, and if I went through like my whole story, I met a, you know, I met a builder. And so I learned how to start building and developing my, my uh, past in student housing. I started, I built 500 plus bedrooms around TCU, um, started buying land and learning how to entitle it and would sell to kind of multifamily developers. So I learned kind of what multifamily needed and it's just been a progression. And today um, we have a fabulous team of 22 people. Uh, we have about 400 million of assets under management. And the last really three to four years, our primary focus has been on acquiring existing industrial, kind of what I call class B light industrial, 70s, 80s, 90s vintage, uh, multi-tenant stuff all around DFW. Uh, we have some stuff in Houston and we're looking into San Antonio, El Paso and Austin. Um, have so you're still focusing just on Texas then it sounds like? Primarily. Yeah, right now we're just in Texas. I think um, we've always been a huge believer in Texas. The tailwinds have been at our back for a while. I think in the situation we're in now with COVID, I think those tailwinds are getting even stronger. And so we've looked in Florida and we've looked in Arizona. We've never pulled the trigger. Um, but as we kind of think about the world today, we are really doubling down on on Texas as we consider our backyard. It's where all our relationships are. and um, not that we won't go out of state, but we, we have a lot, uh, a big economy here to, to kind of choose from. So it's where we spend all of our time right now. Very interesting, very cool. So so, so tell us um, a little bit about your, you know, more of your entrepreneurial journey as it relates to Fort Cap. Um, you know, when did you start, um, you know, who was your first hire? Just kind of walk us through that little experience as, as two young entrepreneurs, and we have several entrepreneurs that listen to this show, uh, just would like to kind of take a walk with you on that journey. Yeah, like, it, like look, from the outside looking in, right? Yeah. Not to put you on too much of a pedestal, but, but, <laughs> but for real, like you're doing what a lot of people want to do. I mean, and, and you've done it at a young age and um, it, you've got an extremely reputable company. So, you know, knowing that there's no magic secret and you've got to, you've got to do the work, you know, what, how, how can you relate Clayton's question into providing some type of uh, roadmap or, or direction for brokers or young entrepreneurs who are aspiring developers trying to bridge that gap? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so for me, Fort Capital, um, it's really been since I bought that first house and it's been a series of name changes. I've had partners in the past. Uh, Fort Capital was officially named in 2012. Um, but to me, it's, it's been around since 2004 and it's just been a, a kind of an evolution. Um, I think the biggest thing, um, and, and we all kind of get into the industry differently, I got in with no experience and just kind of kept figuring it out. Um, but I think the first hire I ever made to kind of your question, um, I think when you're, especially when you're young and I've never really been inside of another company, but hiring that first person is always like, uh, am I gonna be able to afford it? Like, how do I, and, and I remember, um, it was Meyer and he told me like really early on, he's like, 
if you got 30 hours of your week back because you were able to outsource work or, or delegate work to an assistant or whatever that might be, do you think you could make enough money to cover that person's salary plus some? And when you're talking about it like that, it's like, well, yeah, of course I could, but you're still kind of struggling to kind of pull the trigger. And so my first hire was an assistant um, that, uh, you know, did a lot of this. I mean, when I started early, I always joke, I don't know if y'all have ever heard of Grasshopper, but it's- Oh a, yeah. yeah, phone service. Oh yeah, you used to call, uh, at the time it was called Powers & Co Realty, but it was a one person shop, but you could dial one for, uh, you know, development. Hey, let me transfer you to property management. Um, so I was a big grasshopper user early on. And um, really in the early days, especially if you're putting together your first deal, you're kind of putting together the deal, you're kind of raising the money for it, you're actively running the deal, and you realize really quickly that that works for if you have one or two, three deals going on, but it doesn't work as you continue to expand. And so um, I think that the big thing for me was understanding that if I wanted to kind of scale, I, you kind of go through this like messy middle where um, you can't look at every deal as like how much money I'm going to make. It's like, how much money can we make to build a team that if we do things right, will pay off in the long run. And I don't think that's an easy commitment to make, especially when you're young. I can't speak to people that are maybe coming out of the industry that have a big track record and can easily kind of raise money behind an idea. But for me, um, I think the second big lesson I learned was how to raise money. Um, that, you know, real estate's expensive. Um, you can't just kind of do it with a thousand dollar savings. You got to have some real money. And so um, that guy, Adam Blake, I said like, how am I, I think the first big project I ever did was 24 townhomes next to TCU. And he showed me how to make a deck and how to talk to investors and how to present a deal. And it's something I learned really early on. And I think it's something for any listener is if you haven't raised money, I think the idea of raising money is kind of scary. Like, how could I ever do that? Uh, what you really learn is one, there's a lot of money out there in the world uh, looking to find deals. And two, especially if it's your first deal or two, as much as they're probably underwriting the deal and understanding the deal, they're really making a bet on you. And when you're early on and you have no track record, it, your track record is like, if I don't make this deal successful, it's my whole reputation. I might not do deal number two if deal number one goes bad. And so I always have a really kind of soft spot for people bringing their first deal in because I know that they are so hyper-focused on a successful project. Not to say that bigger companies like where we are today, where we've done 50 plus deals, aren't concerned about making everyone a success, but you have a little more wiggle room then. And so I think those first couple projects are critical. And I think the idea that um, I think they're easier to get done than maybe somebody would imagine. Um, so I learned how to raise capital. And then um, even in real estate, you're kind of a deal shop. At least we were doing lots of deals. But for me, the big transition came when it became, okay, now I got to start hiring people. And I started realizing like my day-to-day -day wasn't as focused on finding deals anymore. It was on finding people that could find deals and building a company. And I don't, I don't think anybody ever realizes when they've kind of crossed that threshold. It's usually like a series of mistakes that you make till you realize I'm building a business. I'm not doing daily deals anymore. Um, but I'd say the kind of the last thing on the journey is, you know, people are not expenses. Um, on the PL, their assets. And every time we hire somebody new, uh, revenue continues to kind of follow them and value continues to get created. And I think that's another big kind of mental crossing a lot of entrepreneurs go through is that the more people you hire, it shouldn't be more expense to the company. It should be, think of it as more assets to the company that can help produce more opportunity. And um, I certainly don't have it figured out. I've been doing it 16 years now. I've hired people, I've fired people, I've made every mistake you could make, but when it, where I sit today, I, I, I laugh about it, but my, my goal is to be as irrelevant as possible, meaning I my finance team is awesome, my asset management team is awesome, my property management team is awesome, my accounting team is awesome. I should not be better than any one person in our company at their job, and um, it took me a while to figure that out, but once I did, 
uh, it's been rewarding ever since. How did, how did you how did you give up that control, Chris? Talk talk to us a little bit about that as you grew. You know, not easy. Um, <laughs> why I asked the question? Yeah. Yeah. You can Google. A, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say it's a phenomenal philosophy, and it's it, you empower your employees, and they take you know ownership of that. And I agree wholeheartedly that uh, that is how you grow your company. You know, you got to let go of the reins, even if they're doing 80% of what you could do over a period of time, they, they'll, they'll figure it out if you give them the freedom to, to do that. So, yep. I mean, I commend you and I just, it shows even in your, on your website, when your picture's four levels down and not even on the top, you know, I can just, you can, you can pick that type of, uh, humble attitude up and I'm sure your employees uh, know that you wouldn't ask them to do anything that you wouldn't be willing to do you know as the leader of the company and uh, so anyhow I just I think it uh, I think it's a great philosophy yeah no, and again it's it's one of those things I think you learn over time um, I think we live in a world today where the CEO is, is everything everybody wants to talk about. The cover of magazines is, you know, these Mark Zuckerberg and these huge CEOs, larger than life people. And um, the truth of the matter is they tend to get a lot of the credit for the work done by others. And I just kind of figured that out really early on. And so to answer your question, and you can't really see it, but this thing uh, right here says, um, it's a note that was written to me and it says, don't do, thank, don't act, listen. And if you want to see your people change, you need to change. And so um, I am, it takes everything in me to sometimes sit back and listen and not act. I'm, I'm just born to kind of keep going. Um, so I think to, to, to take one step back is, um, you know, even when you're hiring really early on, it's often like, how can I find like the best person for the cheapest cost? And again, things I heard over and over and read was like, every time you think you're overpaying for talent, what you really realize is you underpaid, like paying for great people is worth its weight in gold and not paying for great people creates a mess. You become kind of you still are like a one man show with a lot of people trying to figure it out. And so, um, you know, once you've found a rock star or you've hired someone that's awesome, you just see the results. It's, it's, it's can't, it's, it's there. And then having the kind of humility to say like, I'm not as good at that person's job as they are. And I can't, if I want to do the things I want to do, I can't keep trying to do the things that they're doing. Um, and so you can Google lots of this stuff on the founder's dilemma and, you know, giving up control. And it's just been this steady, um, just belief that the more I give up and the more I'm willing to stay in the background, the more successful will be. And I sit here today saying it like I haven't figured out, but I've, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way to get there. But I'm, you know, I think it's, if you've read Good to Great by Jim Collins, um, it's probably the best business book I could recommend anybody to read. Um, Sounds like you've incorporated a lot of the e-myth into your business too. Oh yeah. Kind of, you know, creating a system and then just being able to plug a cog into the wheel and continuing to repeat the process and automate and systemize it as much as you can. Yep, so if you're looking like that little yellow sheet I just pointed to, just to the right of that is our flywheel, which you read about in Great, Good to Great. and our team knows what our flywheel is. They know how it works and how every time we do one of those things, great, it continues to make everything else better. And so I think the other thing I'd, I'd say to that is, again, it's in this business, it's really fun to want to do lots of deals. Um, and often we, we hear about the big acquisition. We hear about uh, the big sale, but you don't read a lot about what people go through the five or seven years they own the asset operating it. Cost, uh, uh, we call it core, cost reduction, overhead management, revenue generation. Um, but the people that are most successful and stand the test of time are incredible operators. But that's not usually what gets the attention is how do you operate assets? And so we, that was another thing I had to get over is I thought of this business as like, let's just do more deals, baby. Let's just buy more deals, buy more deals. And you realize really quickly, 
I can buy a deal and some inexperienced person could buy the same deal at the same price and we could have two totally different outcomes when it's all said and done. And that comes with what happens the five years that you own the deal or however long you own it. And so all these guys that we look up to in the real estate industry, um, although they're written about as these heroes, they're really heroes because they've built amazing operating platforms. And so we think a ton about operations as much as we do investing. What's been your biggest success in finding good talent, Chris? Culture Index. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a program um, that people take a survey. It judges them on six different um, kind of unique characteristics. Uh, one being, is this a person that thinks more about today or is the person that thinks more about tomorrow? Um, you need both. If you got me that's out there thinking about tomorrow, I need somebody that can execute on today. Um, the second is, do they get their kind of daily um, uh, affirmation through logic, data, and facts, or from uh, social interaction? Two totally different people. An accountant, probably more logic, data, and facts. A salesperson, probably more uh, people-oriented. Uh, focus, is this someone that needs 10 things a day to work on or one thing? Like a software engineer can sit in front of a computer for 10 hours uninterrupted. I can't sit in front of a computer for five minutes without fidgeting with something new. <laughs> uh, the fourth is detail. Is this a detail-oriented person or not? The, the fifth is logic and the sixth is intuition. And so what we do, you we, we take a survey if I'm hiring you, um, the five people on our team that might work with you will fill out a survey of who they think we should hire. And it comes up with a match. And then when people interview with us, if they, they take a survey, if they're at least a 70% match, we'll interview them. And we have, it's grown our talent and we know who we're getting. Often the interview process, you feel like you're hiring one person and you find out six months later, you hired a totally different person. So we tried to eliminate that. The second, uh, which is, you know, I think you probably read about this more, but our purpose statement is to hire, is to be a place that inspires people to be their best. And we put a ton of attention on hiring the right people. Um, we know that once they're here, we hope they're here forever. And so we get told all the time, like your interview process takes forever. And we're like, I know that's because we don't want to screw it up and we want it to be the right fit. So we just put a lot of focus on that. Well, and it's a time investment. I mean, that's what people don't understand is, you know, as a, as a business owner, you don't want to invest your time and your resource into someone that you can't see staying with you for a long period of time. You yep. know, it's a very important decision. It really is. I mean, these are if not the most important. For sure. They have families, they have, they got to send their kids to schools and they have to do lots of things and you're not, it, it's a very big investment. And um, yeah, we just, I think it's another thing you learn as you grow a business, how much, you know, in the early days, and if anybody that worked for me really early on, this is not a negative, but it's like, you're just looking for warm bodies to join the fight. It's like, come on, you got a resume, college degree. I'm not even going to call your reference. Just come here today. And now it's more like, let's just really spend the time to get to know who we're hiring. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how it changes. So, well, cool, man. Well, let's pivot a little bit. Let's talk about real estate. Um, yeah. Tell us a good war story. I mean, what what is uh, what is a deal that you've done where you just not made a lot of money and you've gained a lot of knowledge? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, and I don't want to be the guy that's on here that says they've never lost money in a deal, but <laughs> I'd say we've had deals that the dollars were harder to earn than others. I think probably one that comes off the top of my head um, is. Uh, we bought a piece of land on the Trinity River here in Fort Worth. Um, we in, initially, it was unentitled. We have a lot of entitlement experience. And so we know that that can take 12 to 18 months. And the idea was to sell it to a uh, multifamily developer that we already had teed up. So we buy the land, we go under contract, we start the entitlement process and the neighborhood association basically says, we are going to wage war. This project will never happen. And so, yeah, we, we bought a deal for, you know, I won't get too much into numbers, but we say we bought a deal for a dollar and thought we were selling it for two. 
Um, and so we had to go out of contract. We spent two years looking for another use on the site, which was extremely hard to find somebody that could use the site that the neighborhood would agree to, that the city would agree to, that would still provide a return. And four and a half years later, we are about to sell that piece of land. Um, I guess I will get into numbers. We bought it for about 4.7. We've put five years into it and we'll sell it for about $5.1 million four and a half years later. And when we bought it, we thought we were selling it for 9 million bucks. And it's been, it's just a lot of challenges. And there's a lot of money to be made in buying unentitled land and entitling it, but it's a, it's not for the faint hearted. And there's a lot of, stakeholders involved, the city government, neighborhood associations. We were on the Trinity River, so dealing with the Corps of Engineers. Um, it's been the hardest project I've ever worked on that's not gonna make hardly a dime for our investors. Wow. So, um, what, so, so what's the biggest lesson learned on that deal? I mean, you're living it right now, so this is a good example. <laughs> yeah. We've had, I mean, we've done 10 of those projects and been very successful. Um, the biggest lesson there is, um, I would probably have done a lot more investigating with the neighborhood association before we purchased it. We had already done some deals in the area. So we, we knew the people, we, we were familiar, but we had already done two multifamily projects in the area. And so this would have been the third. And although the market said we need more units, the neighborhood was like, no way in hell. And so that in and of itself was the biggest um, heartache. And then, um, look, it's just like valuing land. The more density you can get on it, the more you can sell for it. Um, if you're gonna buy unentitled land, know what your, like the base case user is gonna be. Um, and we just got, I think, a little bit too proud of ourselves and thought this would be a slam dunk. We'd get a third multifamily group in and, and it has been anything but that. So what, what, was the, uh, what was the final use or what is the final use gonna be? This is the craziest thing. We're selling it to the same developer, uh, but they have a senior housing over 65 category. Uh -huh. So it's it's not senior housing. You just have to be over six. It's over 55. Um, yeah, 55 and over. Yeah. But it's a lot less dense. We we talk to townhome groups. We talk to senior groups. We talk to, I mean, everybody. And we ended up back with the same developer doing an over 55 community four and a half years later. Single um, level. Uh, it's two stories at street level, and then it kind of falls off towards the river. And so it's three stories, but it still feels like two. Sure. And we were thinking we were about to get a five-story wrap, super dense deal. And right. uh, that didn't happen. So, so what was their main concern? Or what was the, the, what was the huge pushback from the neighborhood? Was it the height? Was it the light pollution? What was it? I think the word multifamily is like a lightning rod, no matter what market you're in. People just hate it. Um, there was a lot of, you know, stuff built in the 70s and 80s that turned into, you know, rundown apartment communities. Um, so one, that's just a tough word, no matter where you are. Um, uh, the second is traffic. Everybody's always very nervous about traffic. We've showed three studies to the city that said we're nowhere close to being at full capacity. But, you know, in Texas, we like our single family homes. We like very little traffic. We like, um, you know, we don't want to be New York City or any of these other places. I joke, but in Texas, if, if you can't pull up to a restaurant and park like right in front of it, you don't go. If you have to park in a parking garage and walk around the corner, it's like, nope, not going. But that same Texan will fly to New York and walk 30 blocks to dinner. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. It, it's parking, it's, uh, it's traffic, it's, it's multifamily, it's height. Um, and the crazy thing about neighborhood associations, and I'm not saying that they're, they're bad by any means, but they're very uneducated. And so it's just like anything that's not a single family house, we're going to fight. And, um, you see that a lot. What you mean. Yeah. Yep. Yep. They're here too, everywhere. It's uh, everywhere. Yeah. It's 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 definitely, and it's just funny just hearing you talk because a lot of people just don't understand how much really goes into a project and all the different yeah. dynamics that you have to deal with. And and yeah. when you're talking about you know how high can you build the density, the you know the light pollution, the traffic flow, traffic impact studies, all this stuff that goes into a commercial project. It's not just buying a piece of dirt and just 
building whatever you want on there. Yep. There's a lot of a lot of dynamics that happen. So well, good. Well, well, situation uh, first. You solve for parking first before you even get to your building. I tell people all the time, like any that time you see a new building going up, there's been two years of work before mm -hmm. that to get it ready that nobody sees. And that work is exhausting. It's not fun. It's um, it's a lot of work. So yeah, and even in these bigger markets like Dallas or St. Louis or you know downtown Phoenix, you buy an asset like that. It's like you're buying the parking lot and you get a building for free kind of thing. For sure. Um, can I ask you a quick question as it relates back to uh, you know your first raise when when you were getting started and you were talking to investors and you'd put your pitch deck together and you're out there shaking hands and you know raising money person to person instead of you know via your podcast and your big you know digital platform now what um, what type of returns were you offering then versus you know what type of returns are you offering now when you were getting started for example was it just like a straight preferred return or did they have some type of equity participation and and how does that differ from what you guys are doing now if you feel at liberty if you if you feel comfortable sharing that type of info yeah that's a great question i mean i would say what we're doing today is very similar to what we did then so i think that first deal we we syndicated about a million and a half or two million dollars and it was a it was an eight prep so uh an eight prep uh, on raised equity after that, pay down principal balance until they've received 100% of their original balance back plus their preferred return. And then we split all remaining cash flows 70-30. Um, today- 30 to the sponsor? 30, yeah, 30 to me, the sponsor, and 70%. Yep. And in that deal, I didn't have the, the balance sheet to get a loan, so I had somebody come in and help sign on the loan. And so I split that 30% uh, with somebody that was willing to help um, get the loan. So I worked for three years for 15%. He was a, you know, a guy that had, uh, you know, a big balance sheet and he signed on the load. Loan. But you didn't have any, did you have any skin in the game at that point or was it just your, your time in, 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 in knowledge? Yeah. So, uh, that's a great point. I think, especially when you're raising money early and, and, and always, it, it really never changes, but showing investors your skin in the game, whatever that means. So, even if you don't have a lot of money, if $5,000 is all you have, that's what people want to see is that if, if this doesn't work, we're, we're both hurting. It's not heads I win, tails you lose type situation. So yeah. a big part of our deck was what I was in and so or what I was contributing. So I was on the note, um, even though I didn't really have any, a ton. So that's why I brought in a partner. And I put in enough capital that was probably half of the money that I had made to date over throughout college. So I was very invested in the deal. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and then as far as it goes today, it's, we've structured things. We've done it a lot of different ways. We've done preferred only. Um, we've done deals where we guarantee a 20 IRR with a minimum of a one year hold period. So a minimum of a certain multiple. And if we can get them out at that guaranteed IRR, then we own 100% of the deal after that. Obviously, you, you refinance them out and then you just retain your position in the deal? Yep. If we can get them all their capital plus the guaranteed IRR, which is like a 20 IRR, we own 100%. The, the good news if deals work out and you can do them on time, you can own 100% of your deal. As that clock keeps ticking and if things aren't working out, they can eat the deal up pretty quick. So it's certainly a risk, but the upside is owning 100% of your deal. The downside is, you know, the prep continues to kind of eat you up. Um, yeah. And are you guys still seeing, are you still, you know, um, seeing 20% IRR deals or have you adjusted your expectations at all? We're still seeing them um, as, as we continue to grow, obviously kind of law of numbers, it's easier to do bigger returns with smaller deals. It gets harder as you kind of move up the stack because there's more competition. And But I would say everything we pencil to right now is above a 15 IRR net to the LP. So that's after splits um, and we really shoot for 20. You know, industrial's been, we started in 2016 when it wasn't sexy. It's pretty sexy now. Everybody yeah. wants to talk about industrial. So we've yeah. been fortunate. We have 50 and 60 IRR deals on stuff we held for two or three years. Um, I think the last structure that we've really been thinking about is 
um, especially with high net worth individuals, um, I think everything's modeled on like this five year outlook. Um, but when you talk to investors, it's like they want to know that they can get their money back in five years. But when you actually give it back to them in five years and sell a deal, the next day they call you that morning and they're like, hey, we need to place this capital. Right. It's like yeah. they wanted to touch the bank account and then get the hell back into the market. <laughs> yeah. And so what we said was when you put a pref on a deal and you know we don't do waterfall structures, but a lot of people do, you're inherently making the deal more short-term in nature. It's more of a race to like beat the pref and do all that stuff to, to get to your back end. So we've done two or three deals lately where a lot of our LPs said, we want to hold this stuff for 10 years, 15 years. And we said, okay, well, we don't want to, you know, we, we, we want something that gives us time. And so a lot of this is our track record, but we said, okay, no prep. We split all cash flows, 80, 20 day one, and we'll hold it for as long as you want. And it's amazing how people are like eerie to the idea because it's not as typical but they love it. We've owned some of that stuff five or six years now, and we have no intention to sell. We have no prep. We have to get over it. It doesn't mean we're not refinancing or doing what's right, but we're just doing things how they need to happen rather than trying to force something to happen. And I think when yes. you're constantly forcing something to happen is when things can get a little tougher. When you have a little more patience, it's easier. And, and as you said earlier, you know, uh, don't act, but listen. And if you're listening to your investors, they're all going to have a different risk profile and different goals and time horizons. And if you have all of that in your CRM, then you can kind of, uh, you know, bring the particular investments to those investors as you, as you see fit, you know, one, one deal is not going to fit everybody. And um, so I guess that, that helps too. Yeah. Yeah, and you're seeing this amazing kind of democratization of capital. I mean, for so long, all the money in the world was in a few hands. And now with crowdfunding and, and, and the internet and more access, the biggest untapped source of capital in America is the, the lawyer at home or the doctor at home or the businessman at home that might not have a million dollars to put into a deal, but, you know, 10 lawyers that could put in $100,000 each could. And so as there's more access to deals and uh, more available capital sources, it's naturally gonna drive down returns because there's a huge demand and, and, a, and a limited supply. And you're starting to see these big institutions that always kind of controlled the terms and, and dictated what's gonna happen. They're losing a lot of their leverage as time goes by. And um, I was on a conversation earlier, you're starting to see like tier one sponsors on crowdfunding websites now raising, tens of millions of dollars crowdfunding rather than going to, you know, Prudential and getting one $20 million check. Um, it gives access to investors that never had access and it gives better economics to a GP. It's kind of a win-win. Can I ask you a quick question? That's kind of like out of left field. Yeah. Um, but still timely, you know, there's a lot of conversation right, right now about blockchain and have you, looked at or investigated the possibility of using the blockchain as a mechanism or platform for any particular investment if you're just a syndicated deal not in a fund necessarily but on a one-off basis because what i have heard and what i have seen is that you can you have the potential to own and sell your fractional interest in a property and it makes it much more liquid and seamless if you want to trade out of a position. Um, and I have been reading on it. I haven't seen anything personally. There's another individual that I, I really want to get on the podcast that he has a platform where he's doing this. Uh, and he was from New Mexico originally and now in New York, but have, are you dabbling in that world at all? Yeah. So um, I'm very familiar with it. I know there's like a, like the St. Regis hotel in Aspen or something was the first like really notable project that did that basically taking a property public and being able to offer shares that are tradable through the blockchain. Right. The way that we're actually uh, using it and we're building software now that um, we're pretty close to finishing, which is a totally different way of thinking about the blockchain is, um, and I'll try not to make this long-winded, but let's just say I'm buying a property from y'all and I'm like, hey, uh, did, you, uh, did you follow your warranty and, and uh, uh, 
maintenance the HVACs once a year? Uh, you'd probably say, yeah, we did. And I say, like, can you show me proof? And you're like, not really. I mean, we have a bunch of receipts and stuff. I have to go dig it. Or if I said like, how are your tenants doing? You'd be like, oh, they're doing great. And then I'd go do a tenant interview and you might put me in touch with like your favorite tenant so that I get the best tenant interview. But I have no idea how many times those tenants have complained over the last five years, what they've complained about all this stuff. And so the way we think about it, and I think there's more people thinking about it this way as we go is our operating software will be on the blockchain and we'll timestamp every single event that happens. So when a tenant complains, it's timestamped. Yep. So if I own a property for five years, I can tell you every single action that took place on that property, every receipt, every everything, because it's just part of our daily workflow. So when you go to buy an asset from me, I will hand you my, my ledger basically and say like, here's the last five years. This is everything that's possibly happened. Every tenant communication, everything is timestamped with a code, you know it happened. And I think what you might see in the future are um, I'm not only selling you my physical asset, i.e. The, the real estate, but I'm selling you a digital asset with it, which is like a five-year timeline of every single act. That's crazy. Place. And whose property would you rather buy? Mine that's on the blockchain with timestamps that's proven or somebody else that's like telling you they did things. And I'm not saying people are liars. That's not what I'm getting at at all. It's just very hard to show you what happened over five years and do it in an efficient way where I can gather it and give it to you. Whereas I'm just saying the blockchain, our software is running on the blockchain and everything we did, typed, emails, everything is just being timestamped as it it's goes. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. It gives me the chills because it, it is, uh, it is exactly where the industry is going. It's almost going to be required at some point, yeah. I would imagine. People will sell their companies in the future and be like, okay, you want to do due diligence? Here's our ledger. Go. I mean, yeah. every, everything's here. It's, and it's hard to wrap your arms around what type of value that's going to provide, you know, what time of premium you're going to get on your property for having clean records like that. But there's definitely, it definitely increases the value of the property. I so, would, I would think. And think about it when you're going to negotiate insurance and you're like, this is how we operate our properties. We're not telling you how we do it. We're showing you like, here's the proof of how we maintain our buildings. It'll help with insurance coverage. Or if I'm going to an investor that's skeptical or, or wants more information is like, here, read this ledger. This is how we've run this property the last five years. Is there anything we should have done differently or whatever? And you can get as micro detailed as possible. I mean, you could timestamp every email associated with a property for 20 years. Every time wow. the plumber shows up, every time an invoice is paid by accounting, it's it's logged in. It's not like our employees are going in and timestamping. It's just automatically happening. We're just saying everything that happens, timestamp it. And if anybody ever wants a full ledger of what we say we did is what we did, here it is. So is this a software that you guys are going to develop, license, and sell? It's a great question. Not right now. We're we're building it internally, um, but you know, similar. And not to say at all, we're like an Amazon. But with the Amazon philosophy is like, if you are your own customer, you kind of keep building it the right way. And who knows? Maybe there there is a a third party market. We're not thinking of it that way now, but we're thinking about it as an option, I guess. Phenomenal. Thank so, you. Um, so kind of because we're coming up on, on the end of our show here, I think we've kind of like spent the last couple of minutes here kind of just talking and picking your brain kind of globally on on where you're kind of at um, from evaluating investments and, and kind of the, I guess, really the real estate landscape throughout Texas and the different asset classes. I mean, it sounds like you guys are mostly focused again, on warehouse, you know, are you still doing multifamily deals, any retail deals? Just kind of give us a snippet um, on kind of where you're at and how you're viewing the market holistically right now, maybe maybe right now, a year from now, and maybe five years from now. Yeah, I think my outlook would have been a lot different if we had done this in early April. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think most Lots people changed. probably fall into that camp. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to look out right now. I would say 
We own about three and a half million square feet of industrial. Uh, we'll close on another half a million by the end of the year. Um, like I said, we, we've been doing it for four years. I would say it's where 90% of our attention is focused. So we'll be in all major Texas markets focused on class B vintage industrial. And we're really kind of on the sidelines watching a few things, uh, manufactured housing, I've recently kind of started looking at cell towers and, and what could happen there. You're seeing people that are converting old cell towers to 5G. You're seeing them putting them on buildings and signing leases. Um, that's interesting. Uh, we're looking at a lot of truck storage and like Amazon Prime has all their Sprinter vans. Um, but to store all those in an infill location, it's hard to find land that's zoned for that. So we, we like that a lot. We're not doing any more multifamily. It's just a really crowded industry. Um, people are doing really well with it, but it's just something we've just decided we can't be good at everything. And managing multifamily is a hell of a lot different than managing industrial. It's very, it's very people intensive. It's very intensive. Um, and then I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we keep hearing distress is coming, distress, distress, but we might start getting into buying some of these, I'd call them like not great retail located properties that are maybe like grocery anchored or some of these super centers that might be able to be converted into like a quasi industrial use. Um, we've started signing leases with cloud kitchens and ghost kitchens in DFW. So that market's expanding. Um, but I like industrial because no matter what you buy, it's got to pass through an industrial building at some point. And you, even if you're at home, obviously, um, I don't think retail's dead. I think it's still learning where it's going to head. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of malls that open up. Um, but I don't know. I mean, Texas, if I spoke to Texas, which I know the best, we've had 400,000 people moving here on average the last 10 years. And I'm talking to people that think we'll be at a million people a year here in the next 24 months. And so crazy. you think about what's, what's driving that, Chris? Um, California. Yeah, we, have a great, exactly. we have a great government and business climate. Um, we have great people and a great culture. We have a lot of room to expand. Mm -hmm. um, we have industry already here. I mean, DFW and we have DFW Airport, which at one point throughout COVID was the most active airport in the world. Um, we have oil and gas. We have the ports. We have border trade. Um, we just have a lot going for us. And you see like Austin with what's going on in tech really expanding to become the next Silicon Valley. Uh, you just saw Tesla just built their next gigafactory in North Austin. Um, and so our, like as much as I love real estate, our bet is as much on Texas as it is on industrial. Um, and, and under those terms, it's like, there's a lot of asset classes that'll work better in Texas than they might in other markets. What do you, what do you think about data centers? Awesome. Them. So I, I heard um, one of the, the big, big data center companies, I had a drink with their CEO about a year ago, and he told me something fascinating that I just thought was crazy, but he said, Facebook and Microsoft can't even predict six months out how much data they'll need. And the U.S. is like 5,000 data centers behind demand. Oh, wow. Um, now you see them kind of congregated in certain markets, but I think it's a fascinating industry. It's just, they're big deals. They're hundred million, 200, they're, they're huge deals. So you can't like, it's not like you can flip a house and then learn to build a house and then maybe build 10. It's like you go from zero to a hundred million. And if you can't do that, it's, it's not a game to play. I think the last comment I'll make on it though, is you're seeing a lot of people innovate and learning to turn basically anything into a data center. Whereas it used to be, need to be climate controlled and all these specs, you're starting to see technology that allows a lot of things to become data centers that once couldn't. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And oh, by the way, that happens in industrial properties when they're doing conversions. So we like that. Yeah. <laughs> and as cannabis gets legalized in Texas and in states, they're in industrial. Yeah. That's another huge headwind. If you look at the states that have had legalization of cannabis, their industrial market has gone crazy. Yeah. We don't think, we think and eventually, my opinion is that will be decriminalized nationally they're yep. going to the house floor next uh, soon I don't it, know will. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense it does so okay well and to, to kind of wrap it up I mean what is kind of one piece of advice you would give a real you know commercial real estate entrepreneur out there oh 
the one thing I would the, the one thing I would say is find a asset class and a like a micro market or a sub market and be so religious about learning that mic that market and learning that asset class. And like for me, if I think about it in the early days at TCU, I knew every home on every street. I know who owned it. I know when it sold. And there was just nothing you could get by me. And I could look at a deal and in five minutes tell you yes or no. Whereas a really smart person coming from New York, it might take them five days to figure out if that's the right deal. And being able to get to no's quick and not waste your time on deals that are a no uh, is, is a super powerful thing. And you can only do that if you're hyper-focused, but that focus can scale. Once you learn how to master a micro market, you can kind of take it to like a bigger sub-market and then maybe a whole city and then maybe a state. And But I would learn in a really tight, niche market uh, first and don't get distracted by lots of different asset types and oh, maybe I'll just go to this neighborhood next. It's like, stay really focused on it and it'll scale really well as you grow. Great advice. Great advice. So, well, man, thanks again for, you know, being on the show with us. And, you know, again, you're, you're such an accomplished guy, uh, young guy, so definitely an inspiration to a lot of different people out there. So what's the, what's the best way for people to find out more information about you and uh, potentially get in contact with you? Yeah, um, you can go to our website, fortcapitallp.com, or I'm really active on Twitter, at Fort Worth Chris. Perfect. All, spe all spelled out? Or yeah. is it FT? Uh, Fort Worth spelled out. Okay. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much. We greatly appreciate you having you on the show. Thank, Thank you, you Chris. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Hey listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. If you feel someone within your network would benefit and learn from this podcast, please feel free to share this or any other episode with them. If you feel you have benefited from this podcast, please leave us a review on any platform where you listen to podcasts. We greatly appreciate your support and feedback, and we look forward to connecting with you on the next show. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, stay educated.